I'm going to apologize at the top of this to apologize for my audio. For some reason, my voice just started going. You can kind of hear it now. So if you're not into hearing strange noises, maybe don't listen to this one. But if you are or you don't mind, I hope you enjoy the show. Not financial advice, not legal advice. Study Bitcoin. because they're noisy (laughs) and so my weary achy sore legs will wait until we're done getting the good word out there and then i will pressure my legs i got my hammer pants on i got my hammer pants on so we're good to go over here wait like like hammer time pants like like uh parachute pants nice dude yes sir what is the occasion for those? Yeah. yeah. It's a Wednesday and we're recording the Winter Berryland podcast. Oh yeah. Yeah, Wednesday Winterberry Lane. Welcome to Winterberry Lane where we talk about Bitcoin, Freedom Tech and whatever else is on our mind. So what are we talking about today, Tim? Uh, I thought I think we're starting out with eCash. You wanted to talk about eCash, and I'm excited to learn all about eCash because I heard Lynn Alden and Peter McCormick talking about scaling Bitcoin, and she was talking quite a bit about Fediment, which is something you're quite familiar with. So uh, tell us about eCash. Well, eCash in general, it's interesting. So I've kind of changed my perspective a little bit. I don't actually believe eCash to be a layer of Bitcoin anymore. I do think it's a way to scale Bitcoin, but I think it is a separate asset. And I'll tell you why. And and it sort of goes to this idea I've had lately. But let's first, let's, let's talk about just like eCash in general. Um, <clears throat> we're specifically talking about Chaumian eCash. When we talk about eCash in the, the context of Fediment, or there's this thing called Cashew, C-A-S-H-U. Um, biggest difference between the two is Cashew is like a single entity running a mint, where Fetty Mint is a federated mint. Um, both are interoperable with uh, on-chain and Lightning Bitcoin. Actually, I don't know if Cashew does on-chain Bitcoin, uh, but I know it definitely know it does Lightning. Uh, but the idea is these mints are sort of like swap points for these things called this stuff called eCash. And so you send either via Lightning or on chain, you send your Bitcoin and you get an, a one for one issuance of eCash. And at first I was like, okay, this is like a layer of Bitcoin, but it's not because it doesn't, it's not directly tied to like the, the chain, right? Like the base time chain or blockchain, whatever you want to call it. It is its own separate thing. Like if you wrote, um, you know, malicious code you could have a two-for-one issuance of eCash or something like that, right? Like, So it's weird, and you do get these scaling properties, but it's almost like a uh, 
like a gift card system. And it turns out I was I was I put that out into the ether on Nostra, like, hey, like eCash, like gift cards. Um, and this guy Callie, uh, Callie BTC, who is like one of the original dudes that did like cashew, he was like, Yeah, like cashew was like eCash was like a gift card thing. Like that's sort of where it came from. Um and that's because you again you, you send Bitcoin to this mint whether that's via lightning or whether that's via uh, on-chain, and then the mint gives you something that's not Bitcoin. And in this case, it's eCash. And we can kind of unwrap like the properties of eCash, but the biggest thing is like it's privacy preserving. And the way it does that is it uses something called blinded signatures. And the simplest way to conceptually think about like blinded signatures is you have the mint, and when you want to um, you send them in Bitcoin and you, you know, <clears throat> you put this eCash note or the, the, the mint puts this eCash note or let me think about how this goes. There's this eCash note, like a physical, think of like a physical piece of paper with just like data on it, right? Because eCash is just data. And that data represents the asset itself. Now, the mint doesn't see exactly what that data is. It just knows that it's it's data that is worth a, an amount of Bitcoin, right? So if you send a thousand sats into the mint and then you get a thousand sats worth of eCash, the underlying note would say, you know, this is a thousand worth a thousand sats. And the mint, when it signs it, right, because you need some way to prove or like some way to sort of like validate things. And we do that in, in Bitcoin and in, in all these sort of like protocols, we use signature schemes, cryptographic signatures. And so the mint actually signs the eCash saying that this is a valid piece of eCash for this valid amount. But when it does the signing, it's almost as if the note itself is in, inside of an envelope and that envelope has like a carbon copy feature to it. So that way when the, when the mint like presses really hard and it does its signature on the outside of the envelope, that signature goes through onto the cash note inside. And so then when a user gets it back, they would take that eCash out and just discard the envelope. And the mint never saw that internal note, that internal eCash. So that's kind of like conceptually how you can think about eCash and how it helps preserve the privacy of these transactions. And so, you know, say you received a thousand sats worth of eCash in this way and you give me that data, that note that is that is signed as like a thousand sats worth of eCash, I can now take that to the mint. And when the mint sees it, the mint can say, the, the mint can look at the data and go, oh, this is signed by me. I know this is valid. I know this is a thousand sats. But I have no, like there's no other data about it that it, it knows or understands from the eCash itself. So it doesn't know it came from you. It doesn't know, I mean, you could even break that 1,000 sats into like smaller pieces, right? Just like you can normal cash. So maybe you get 1,000 e-cash, 1,000 sats worth of e-cash, you give me 500. I can take that 500 to the mint. The mint knows that it's valid for 500 sats worth. It knows it came from this mint, right? Like it, it knows that there was Bitcoin deposited to the mint to pay for this e-cash. Um, as like a one-to-one -one backing. And, and then it 
it doesn't know anything else. It doesn't know it came from you. It, it doesn't know anything. Um, and what happens is when I give it that 500 sats worth of eCash, it says, okay, like, what do you want now? Like, do you want eCash back? In, in which case it will reissue new eCash, right? So it will um, create a new note worth 500 sats and give that to me. Or I can say, hey, here's 500 sats eCash. Um, please give me lightning sats, right? So, and then I can provide a lightning invoice and it can send these sats over lightning or I can provide like an on-chain address for it to send these sats to. Um, and so that's kind of like conceptually what the eCash thing is when we're talking about like Kishu or when we're, when we're talking about Fediment. Um, Fediment though goes a little bit further than Cashew and Fediment is like this modular sort of uh, paradigm where you can have you can have the federation come to consensus using cryptographic signatures and such um, about like arbitrary pieces of data. So in this case, it's like comes to consensus about eCash. It comes to consensus about Bitcoin transactions. It comes to consensus about <coughs> these lightning swaps between eCash and stuff. But you could have it like come to consensus around like password manager data. Um, anyway, I'm going to pause there because that's like we kind of got a little technical. So I'm curious what your thoughts are or like what what didn't make sense. Uh, I think it makes sense. I think my first question is, are there fundamentalist Bitcoiners who believe that eCash and Fediment are shitcoinery and dangerously close to some kind of corruptible derivative product? Or is that not a concern that anybody has? Oh, 100%. One of my good friends, um, he's like, no, he's like a self-custody maxi. And I don't disagree with him, but I also see, again, how do you do a gift card? Right, like it's, and that's where this gift card idea re recently for me really hit home. Um, is I don't think it's for necessarily individuals. I think it is for individuals within an ecosystem provided by a specific entity. Now, I mean, you scale that all the way up, and that like that could potentially look like a nation state, maybe I don't know. But at the lowest level, like gift cards, right? Like I'm a business and I want some way to accept Bitcoin and then give you something that you can't take anywhere else and use, right? Like that's the idea of a gift card. Um, well, there's these two concepts. Like we have these like Visa, they're called open loop gift cards. Um, and it's like the Visa prepaid cards, right? Like, but that's just, that's different. That's a completely different thing. I'm specifically talking about something called closed loop gift cards where you know, you're Olive Garden and you want all of the money spent at Olive Garden. So you give a, you know, $50 gift card and it's only good at Olive Garden. So you, you know that, that it's not the, like the dollars are not coming back to you necessarily. Like the dollars are spent when you buy a $50 gift card for Olive Garden, but like the value has not been ex extracted. And so when somebody comes back later with a, the $50 gift card, um, you know, you, you know that that's, they're either going to buy more than $50 or they're going to be a repeat customer because they don't spend it all maybe, right? So, or they just forget about it and they never spend that $50 and you're just $50 richer. And that whole paradigm is completely doable with eCash. And so, yeah, if anybody's listening and wants to start a gift card business, hit me up.
we start. How far off is the UIUX for for like kind of the average person, right? Because the average person can go to River, they can go to Swan, they can buy Bitcoin, they can self custody, they can even get into Lightning pretty easily. But who can get into eCash right now? Well, anybody. The code's out there, so it is the barrier to entry is a little higher. Um, you know, there there are projects out there working to, uh, like for instance, you can run Fediment on Start Nine. It's not like an official Start OS package. So, and for anybody that's curious, start if you go to startnine.com, they are a sovereign computing platform, operating system thing, whatever you want to call it. But they take these services and wrap them for their operating system. And so, um, there is Fediment out there. It's like very early sort of not not super robustly configured for start os but there's that there's also just like the docker yeah. like docker is a way to easily run code so you do do have to have a little more technical chops but i think 2024 is going to be a big year for for fediment it sounds like a lot of people are talking about it right now um that's just because fediment the project just hit a stable release meaning like the underlying software is not going to have any like breaking changes for a long time um as you know as newer software is developed obviously you you might want to upgrade but there's like a uh it goes into like software versioning and just having a stable release is important for software especially when you're it's something that you could potentially be running for years and years so um, tell me about the privacy aspects of it. Like, how private is it? Like, on a scale of, you know, Bitcoin layer one to Monero. Um, so I don't, I can't speak intelligently to, <coughs> excuse me, Monero, but I mean, I think it's almost equivalent. Like, there's no, unless you modify the code from what the way it's written right now, you know, eCash coming into the mint. Um, one thing, and, and again, I'll only speak to the sort of Fediment just because I haven't played around with Cashew too much. Um, and I've only, I've only worked on Fediment stuff, but Fediments have these clients, right? So a client, like a client server, right? You have a server that's running the code and then you have a client. This is like a common architecture. It's for like everything, like your, your, your shitter or Twitter, whatever you want to call it app is a client and then it hits a server somewhere to get data down so these fediment clients again like you provide them uh, a transaction id where <coughs> where you sent or you you request an address from like the fediment if you're sending on-chain funds you request an address they give you the address you send it to them you tell them what the transaction id is and then after it confirms so many blocks you get issued eCash. Right now, there's really only one app that I know of that is um, doing like that you can do anything. Well, there's two. There's two. The first is Fetty, which is a company. It's very, very confusing. I hate the name. I've told many people that. But there's a company that they call themselves Fetty and they work on Fetty Mint stuff. And so people always talk talk about like Fetty this, Fetty that, and it drives me bonkers. Anyway, I don't want to get down my pet peeve rabbit hole. But Fetty has an app. I think it's only an alpha right now. So it's like you have to have like the test flight for iOS. 
they they might be releasing something soon i don't know but then um mutiny wallet is another one they just recently integrated fediment support so they can actually um, connect to if you get this connection string for fediment you can use mutiny wallet which is a browser-based lightning wallet um, completely self-custodial you can use that to interact with a a fediment um, so those are the two clients ideally there's you know there's more clients so we're we're very early on the client side i'm pretty bullish on it though because um do you know what the sats links are have you seen that from CoinKite? <coughs> i don't think i have so think of it like uh like a blackberry <coughs> but way more limited <clears throat> and uh it's gonna have some some cool I guess secure storage on it for like keys and stuff like that or like other sensitive data um and it's got a full keyboard qwerty keyboard and it's got wi-fi so i think that's like the perfect thing you know besides the phone but like as we both know phones are completely owned by the telecom industry right like you don't do anything on a phone that the telecom industries don't want you to do so this device, which doesn't use any telecom stuff, um, you could use it as like a little e-cash thing. I think some people are going to be doing like Noster stuff with it as well. Um, but yeah, I, I see those as like future devices. Like you go to a conference or something like that and they're issuing e-cash at the conference as sort of, again, like a gift card type thing. Like, hey, you come to the conference, you want to spend money at the vendors, like you know, deposit a hundred thousand sats and now you can go spend those e-cash notes at all these vendors. One of the other advantages of, of e-cash is it's offline transferable because the data is the asset, right? Like, so it's like the ones and zeros, like the data is the asset. I can just send that to you offline, right? Like I don't need the internet to send it to you. Um, as long as you know you get the data and I don't go double spend you somehow by claiming it before you do, then you're good. And if you, as long as you can communicate to the Fediment, right? So again, we're thinking, like, think you're at like Bitcoin 2024, right? Um, which is like the hottest shitcoin conference in the world, uh, second only to Pacific Bitcoin. But if you're there, cell service is garbage, right? Like if you're if you've ever been to any event or concert, cell service is garbage. So with a Fediment or with a eCash, Cashew, Fediment, whatever, you could run that on the local network. And then you have the clients just connect to whatever the local network address is. It doesn't even have to touch the internet, except for maybe like depositing funds. But you do that, you know, maybe prior to showing up or, you know, just before you get into the building or something like that. And now when you're inside and you go to all these vendors or you're buying food or whatever, it's just all offline eCash in um there's a uh there's a way of like the data is kind of big and so you have to do these either multiple qr codes or an animated qr code which is kind of challenging uh in some ways but that's kind of like the simplest way of doing like offline transfers in the app like i believe i believe the fetty app i haven't used mutiny for it um quite yet but the fetty app had it where you could just your phone you'd hold up with the QR code and it would flash the different QRs. And then whoever was reading that, it would just pick up every 
iteration or whatever, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so I don't know why you're so opposed to Bitcoin 2024. It's going to Nashville. It's going to be a great time. Bitcoin veterans have some, uh, some discount codes. So that's pretty cool. Uh, yeah, I hear if you're a veteran and you're listening to this and you're interested in going to Bitcoin 2024, um, one, I won't be there. But two, you can get a huge discount by connecting with us and checking out the Bitcoin Veterans Group. Um, and, and they're going to be doing something special. So I'm excited. If I could have made it, I would have. Um, I am just prioritizing a more technical event. There's something called TabConf or the Atlanta Bitcoin Conference in October. And that's like hardcore developer stuff. So I got I to gotta stick with my nerds. Yeah, right up your alley. I uh, I don't know if I'll make it to Nashville either, but uh, if you're a Bitcoin veteran, that'd be a cool thing to do. Um, and I only have tease about hating on the conference. I remember, was it 2021 or maybe 2022, Peter Thiel was there giving a speech and uh, starts talking about how Bitcoin is gold and Ethereum is silver and this whole thing. And uh, so that was pretty, that was entertaining. But um, yeah, no, I still think it'd be a great place to go and network if you have the opportunity, but I get it. Uh, technically minded people like you, not quite for you. Um, question though about back to eCash. If you are that person, you buy your Bitcoin, KYC, River, Swan, wherever it is, hopefully a Bitcoin-only company at a minimum. Sure. You send it to Mutiny Wallet, and then you start engaging with, it was Fediment, eCash? Which one was it? Yeah, Mutiny connects with Fediment. At that point, you have lost all of the kind of privacy benefits anyway or is there still a privacy preserving option do you see what i'm saying or do you understand what i'm asking um i mean as soon as you send like so when you send funds into a fediment you're either sending it on chain which Mm -hmm. you know sure if you're going directly from an exchange (coughs) an exchange into a fediment if that fediment is not using you know new addresses or if it's somehow known which wallet belongs to the fediment then maybe you know maybe they know that you sent money in there um but no unless the fediment's like doing kyc on you or know your customer where they're like having you self-identify then no like there's no it kind of does do it kind of breaks that heuristic where because if you think about it if you Maybe we, so, okay, as an example, hypothetically, we start a Bitcoin veterans fediment, right? And we're all running these notes. Anybody that sends money into that is like now when money goes out, like there's no, if it goes out over lightning, that's still, that's, that's pretty private. Um, unless you're using custodial lightning, which you don't have to, um, if you're using just eCash between us, like, no, that's. That's private. Um, even when you take the funds back on chain, it's, you know, there's some, you don't know what UTXO is going to be used, right? Because it's all about like UTXOs. And <coughs> excuse me, UTXO stands for unspent transaction output. And it's just like a ledger entry. It is, it is a, 
Um, the Bitcoin blockchain is full of letter, credits and debits, like a, a checkbook. And a UTXO is just a credit entry that has no, that has not been debited anywhere else, right? So you have all these like inputs and outputs. Um, but yeah, your, you know, your UTXO from the exchange that the exchange ostensibly knows who you are because they're requiring all these IDs and, um, you know, it's really, it's an illicit activity because you don't need to know any amount of data <coughs> to do any transacting on the Bitcoin blockchain except for just an address, really. Um, so from a technical perspective, very different um, function and implementation from Tornado Cash. From a regulatory perspective, probably not something that they're going to differentiate. Right. So this probably would scare the shit out of regulators. I have no idea. I don't care about regulators. Um, like it's... <laughs> yeah, but it's a conversation worth having, right? Because if this becomes like you're talking about this becoming a big deal this yeah. coming year, yeah, and yeah. this is against the backdrop of, you know, Liza Warren and her her recent attempt to violate civil liberties uh, with whatever that garbage bill was called. Um, you know, that, those kinds of things are only going to get more attention moving into 2024. We have yet to see the ETF bring in the kind of capital inflows that really gets Bitcoin like, kind of back in the average person's conversation and mindset. But, you know, if Bitcoin continues to trend in that direction, which it inevitably will, then I see the advancement of eCash and Fedimet being kind of the next step in the regulatory battle. Because you already had with the founder of Tornado Cash, or was it just one of the, the I can't remember who it was, but arrested and I think still in prison. And I think there's... Uh, ongoing court case there, but I could really see Fedimet and eCash being that next step. The thing is, as much as the it's average a, Bitcoiner, you know, service. even it's it's not a mixing service. No, no, no. I completely agree. But what I'm saying is that from a regulatory uh, standpoint, they're probably going to treat these things exactly the same way. Well, then they should this arrest everybody guess. that's doing but, gift cards as well. Well, I don't, I don't disagree, Gary. But I see that coming, and that's going to be. Really interesting to see no, the problem. That's, that's, that's the, the gift card. You already have like. Go ahead. Well, I'm just going to say you already have some big names. Um, a lot of normal average Bitcoiners who weren't necessarily using Tornado Cash, but they're really big on eCash, really big on Fedimet. Um, I mean, even just Lynn Alden having this lengthy conversation with Peter McCormick about it just the other day. So this is a fight that I don't think regulators can win, but it's one that I see being kind of a focal point here in the next probably 12 to 18 months. Sure. And, and again, that's why it's, it is gift cards, right? Like it's one, you can't stop people from running code. You can't stop people from doing math, but <coughs> Fetty, man, it's, it's a gift card system. Um, that's, it's as simple as that, right? Do you require everybody to give name, phone number, date of birth, social security number when they buy a gift card for Best Buy? No. So I, I can't see, you know, again, like there's there's some, uh, I'm not a lawyer, first of all. Let's, let's be very clear about that. Mm -hmm. There's no legal or financial advice given on this podcast. But why can't I run a gift card business? 
right? It's literally the same thing. You're paying me, and then I'm giving you something that you can only spend within a certain ecosystem. That's what eCash is. The privacy part of it is neither here nor there. It's also not like specifically, it's specifically not a mixing, right? Like no tornado cash was like advertised as like, this is a tumbler, right? This is like that tumble, like launder, like laundering money. No, that's, that's ridiculous. Um, but a gift card is a perfectly legitimate business model and it's well established. It's been around for, I don't know, as long as I've been alive. So I don't see why we can't do that with digital money. With the magic internet. Sure. And then at the end of it, the whole discussion around regulation is always jurisdictional arbitrage. And uh, just, you know, if you want to create a commie hellscape uh, out of the U.S., even more so than it already is, then sure, restrict freedom money. And uh, smart people and free people will go elsewhere. So we're back to the, are you going to leave conversation? Yeah. You know, or, or smart people, free people are just going to ignore the death throes of, uh, I don't know, Elizabeth Warren. Like, who is she? Why does she? The death throes of the Republic. Death throes of the Republic. That was a great podcast that Dan Carlin did on the Roman Empire and not too far off from where we find ourselves today. Uh, but without reflecting on the Roman Empire too much, what else? What else did you want to discuss? You had said something about a social media advertisement. A social media advert. Well, there was there was a thing. Are you familiar with Dennis Porter? I am, and I and I only mention this because it's in my home state. But allegedly, sure. Allegedly. Allegedly. I don't, because I don't know. I don't know who this man is. But there's uh, some senator in Virginia uh, proposed a bill that, you know, gives you rights to Bitcoin or something like that, as if you needed some piece of paper to tell you you could run code. But, uh, yeah, okay. it's, it's like a a bill that will defend, and I quote, equal access to Bitcoin, your right to self-custody, your right to mine, your right to run a node. There's a bunch of like mumbo-jumbo gobbledygook in the actual bill itself. And uh, it's explicitly, I thought one of the most interesting things was from like a home miner's perspective, they cap you at one megawatt. So like home, and they also caveat with like, and you have to comply with local sound regulation. Right, so like if you have a bunch of miners just going like, and it's too loud, and like the neighbor, the ladies down the street get all angry about it, um, you know, that uh, you have to deal with noise noise order ordinances. Uh, but it was just interesting, <clears throat> and you had talked about, <clears throat> you had mentioned the regulatory environment, so that was something that came across my my purview of late. Was uh, Dennis Porter was like, has got some senator in Virginia at the state level at least, to introduce a bill. Um, which I just think is funny because it's, you know, it's many such cases, I think, throughout history where, you know, you have these politicians essentially trying to write down uh, what you are allowed to do, right? Not like, not prohibitive, but like you're allowed to do this thing. 
But when did that, you know, when did that become the normal thing? I think there are these God-given inalienable rights that we all have that stem deeply from personal property rights that you don't need, you know, a piece of paper to say that you can do something. Um, I think laws should primarily be there to prohibit you from violating somebody else's property rights, right? Yeah. Well, the fact that you're created with a free will inherently means that you have the right to do things, right? And other people have the right to do other things. And the way that you limit those things is when your free will impedes on the free will of another person, right? And that by itself mm -hmm. is inherently right natural rights and then you're talking about positive rights negative rights um that being said i don't get upset i think i think your assessment you know when did it become natural for people to say what you could and couldn't do completely agree um you know my anarchist inclination is the government has no place in doing any of that but that being said as long as we live in a system you know in a supreme court uh rules to kind of solidify or confirm gun rights, I'm not upset, right? I think right. it's dumb, right? But also it's like, sure, okay. I mean, that's helpful. Thank you for that. I'm going to continue pressing to abolish all of you and everything, but, yeah. you know, thank you for that. That's, uh, that's good. So as long as, and, you know, it worth the point to, um, and, you know, you and I have, different perspectives on swan but this idea that you want to achieve a critical mass of bitcoiners right and then once you achieve this critical mass then you really just can't ignore it anymore you know regulators can't really do anything because you already have all of these people it's like the whole um politics is downwind of culture conversation um you that's the tail wagging the dog if you want to use that term so it's uh you can't really, you can't really get past it at that point. And um, I think that more regulation that is positive and helpful for Bitcoin, if you want to use the term regulation, anything that helps Bitcoin, especially in this kind of critical phase where we're in right now, it's like if a Democrat from Virginia wants to pass a bill, even if it's just in his own self-interest, it's like, sure, we'll take it. We'll run with it. That's fine. Eventually, it doesn't matter what bill they're going to pass for or against. I thought it was interesting because he's the dude, like his district, I looked it up just to see where he's from, but he's like from like the Fairfax area, which is like a Loudoun, Northern Virginia. Uh, well, it's not Loudoun, mm -hmm. it's Fairfax, but that's like the DC metropolitan um, area. So I thought that was, I, I thought that was a little interesting. I thought it might've, <clears throat> might've come from some other area of Virginia. Um, but either way, it's, you know, and you mentioned the whole like getting a bunch of Bitcoiners, like the intransigent minority. Um, I, I've been doing a lot of thinking about that one, and I think there's there's one very glaring flaw to it, and I think it's the messaging around it. And if you get 10 million people to care about Bitcoin because they're they're holding bags, right? Like they have Bitcoin, so they care about it. Um, I think you still need the majority of those people to care about the actual properties and values of Bitcoin, not just the number go up, right? Like it's very easy to sell, you know, quote unquote normies or whatever you want to call them on, oh, well, like this, you know, Bitcoin is, is going to make you wealthy over time. Um, like that's cool, but 
does it really like it doesn't seem like it does much for like the mission like the technical revolution of bitcoin and free in freedom tech in general um because if you get people that just care about wealth or wealth generation or preservation or anything like that and not necessarily about the um keeping your digital rights free then i think it's very easy for capture to happen at that point right it's like, oh, well, you're not, you're not like, you're not making me poor by over-regulating all this Bitcoin stuff. Um, you know, you're not explicitly banning it. So like, I'm fine with you just kind of like cracking down hard with all these privacy violations and everything like that. So that's cool. Uh, you know, I'm glad that there's, there's people out there, I guess, doing this mission, trying to get a bunch of Bitcoiners. Um, but if you get a bunch of fiat-minded people to care about Bitcoin and they're still fiat minded, then I, I don't think you've done much of a service. So that's my two cents there. Yeah, I think it just depends on how you do it. I think the ETF is definitely going to draw those people in. Um, so maybe that's kind of an issue. I think that uh, platforms like Swan and River, uh, the Bitcoin-only companies that really focus on education and media engagement, I think that that's a big part of it. And everybody comes to Bitcoin for different reasons. So I don't know that everybody, you know, that all 10 million of them are going to come to Bitcoin for, you know, one specific reason, right? Like I came to Bitcoin ultimately because my experience in the military told me that one, I couldn't trust the government. Two, they weren't going to stop printing money. And three, I needed to do something that was different from what had always been done. Because if there's one thing that I've learned, it's that what has always been done probably isn't going to work for very long. Right. And I think that we see that, you know, across culture, across time, right? You can't, I mean, change is inevitable. Um, so I came to Bitcoin for those reasons, but there are people who come to Bitcoin because it's the best performing financial asset of, you know, the last 15 years. So, I mean, maybe that's enough for a certain segment of the critical mass. And again, it's not going to be, you're going to have the libertarians, you're going to have the anarchists, you're going to have, um, you know, people who are, I guess, politically minded, not necessarily number go up libertarian or anarchist, but they have their own political interests. And, you know, as Bitcoin grows in popularity, there's there's already, you know, Erica Rhodes, uh, I think was her name. She was a school teacher who was running for Congress in California, uh, Democrat. Um, she, she I can't remember if she won, but Bitcoin was a big part of her platform. Um, Eric Adams, the mayor of New York. Now, I think he abandoned Bitcoin almost as soon yeah, as he dude, got elected, but he was really... Yeah, but he was really flirting with Bitcoin. So if for, and you know, you can't trust a politician regardless, right? Whoever it is. But for every politician that, you know, just uses it as, you know, gaining some interest or a platform or whatever during an election, there's going to be a lot more that stick with it, right? So however they come to it, whatever their reasons are, I think that there's value in all, all of it. And you can leverage all of it too. Right. I came to it for, you know, political reasons and personal experience reasons. And then I got a lot more into kind of the tech lifestyle, long-term application of, you know, the culture uh, paradigm shifting nature of Bitcoin. 
you came to it from kind of that same perspective that I did, the same reasons that I did, but you went in a far more technical direction, right? So, and that's the thing about Bitcoin is it gives you the opportunity to do a lot of different things and it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So I don't know that everybody has to be on the same page. They don't all have to be kind of the anarchist-minded people like myself and, and you even. Um, but even just a little bit, whatever your thing is, you come to Bitcoin, I think Bitcoin can use that and make it work. And uh, I think that's a, a great feature and something to be excited about. But what does it mean to use Bitcoin, right? So that's like, you know, that's a good philosophical debate to have is, um, you know, the, the custodial wallet, your Coinbase account, your River account, whatever. Like if somebody else is holding the Bitcoin for you, is it even your Bitcoin? Do you do you even benefit from anything other than the perceived number go up? Um, there's a number of things to it. And that's why I think these companies that focus more on the technical side, right? So like we, we've, you've mentioned Swan River a number of times. So they're both Bitcoin only. Um, however, one is way more focused on technicals and automation and the underlying infrastructure. And the other is doesn't even run their own infrastructure, right? Like they're not doing Bitcoin development. They are integrating with third-party APIs that do you know, pseudo Bitcoin development for them. So I, I think uh, from a longer term perspective, though, the value added is going to come from people that are fo technically focused because this is, and I've said it many times, this is a technical revolution. And if you're not using or understanding the tech, you're going to miss a lot of the big points. Um, <clears throat> you know, I was talking with, uh, one of the guys from the Bitcoin Veterans Group today because he was trying to get off of Ledger, right? So Ledger uh, is a hardware wallet. <laughs> they, they've recently had a bunch of security issues, um, luckily none of which specifically impacted Bitcoin or like if you held Bitcoin with them. But just in general, it seemed just, excuse me, <coughs> Jeez, just seems to have like real shoddy uh, engineering of late. And that's because if you have to deal with these, you know, altcoins or shitcoins or whatever you want to call it, that is like a huge amount of overhead. That's a huge amount of intellectual capital you have to spend on figuring out how XYZ alt shitcoin works. Uh, when instead you could just be focusing on Bitcoin and you could be focusing on how Bitcoin works at a technical level and how do you integrate that deeply into your business. Um so anyway, helping this guy, and he's like, yeah, I want to get all my coins off of Ledger. We we're talking about UTXO management. But eventually I got him to, uh, have you ever been to mempool.space, the website? No. No, Tim. Got to go to mempool.space. So I'll try to paint a picture of kind of like what. <laughs> What's that? So I'm sorry to fail you, Gary. No, it's not a failure. Not at all. But everybody, every person that every node that's running has a something called a mempool or a memory pool. And it's basically all the pending transactions, right? They're sitting in this pool, swimming around, waiting to be put into a block. And so if you go to mempool.space, <clears throat> they've done a really great job at visualizing a lot of the technical data of, of, Bitcoin. 
So, so are you looking at it? Can you pull that up in a browser for me while, while we discuss it? So one of the biggest things, one of the, like, the main reasons why you might go to mempool.space is to look at transaction fees, right? Oh, I have been here before. Yeah, I, I was going to be surprised if you actually had it. But transaction fees, right? So they do a transaction fee estimate. And again, this is like, this is a representation of their mempool. Every node has its own mempool. So there are multiple mempools. This is just happens to be one of them that they, they put a nice interface over. You can actually run this if you're running start OS or start nine. They have a mempool that like I could go browse to my mempool and get the same view, except it would use my node instead of their node. But the cool thing about this is you can click, when you, when you bring up the page, you'll see like across the top there's blocks, right? And it's the blocks and information about the blocks, like how long ago they were mined, uh, how many transactions were in the block, the size of the block in like megabytes, and all these other things. But you can actually click on a block, and when it loads the block, it will show you like a visualization of what the block looks like. It shows you all the transactions that were in a block. Um, so it's a great, great resource. And you can actually go punch in like a transaction ID or an address and it will take you to that and it will show you more details about what's going on with your transaction. Uh, and you can like click through and follow the flow of funds all throughout the ledger, like all throughout the, the Bitcoin time chain. So just super interesting, great tool to use. Um, and if you're interested in sort of like data or like just kind of the flow of things, this is a wonderful thing to kind of walk through. Um, personally, it's how I validate transactions. So like when somebody sends me Bitcoin or when I'm sending Bitcoin, I go to my mempool.space instance and I monitor it from there. Um, but yeah, great resource they have. You know, a dashboard um, for mining shows like the difficulty. They've got the Lightning Network stats in there. Just all kinds of tools on this website for sort of like heuristics and uh, data and stats for the Bitcoin network. But that was it. Yeah, I was talking to this guy. Nice. I walked him through his transaction. Um, and he's not like super technical, but he was fascinated by this mempool concept. <coughs> what yeah i think it's uh i think it's pretty cool i uh i would push back though on your earlier point i don't think that the different approaches to one company building infrastructure and the other outsourcing infrastructure is problematic necessarily um, because when you have conversations like it's like you and me, right? Like you're very technically minded. I'm more kind of political, uh, cultural, pseudo philosophical. And I mean that in the most, uh, you know, ironic sense. Um, and you're not, so when you have these technical conversations with people, that's kind of your outreach, I guess. And mine is very different. I see Swan and River having very different approaches. Um, I mean, every Bitcoin company and every Bitcoin, like every Bitcoin podcast is a little bit different. Like you have some 
super technical podcasts. You have some very mainstream podcasts. You have some uh, really niche areas of, you know, like Bitcoin development and then, um, you know, future development and Bitcoin and people that are just focused on the economics and the finance. Like, and so I think there's just a place for all of it. And I don't know that one is better than another. And that's not to say, obviously, that we can just discount any one thing because, you know, development and the technical side of Bitcoin is obviously critical. And I know that you're a aspiring cypherpunk, so I wouldn't want to take that away from you. But uh, <laughs> there's just a lot more to it than just the technical side. And so if you, in particular, if you're Swan, and you focus extensively on media and outreach and education, and you decide to outsource the development of infrastructure and let other people who are do doing good work uh, build that infrastructure. Now, that isn't to say that bad things are bad decisions, that issues haven't arisen when you outsource infrastructure to, say, third-party custodians, but it also doesn't mean that it's the worst way to go. You just got to figure out you know, who you're trusting and who you're working with. That's a separate conversation, but um, all of that to say that I think that there is a place in Bitcoin for everybody, for every stripe, and uh, I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, I mean, it's all about where you're, you know, we all have um, time and capital that we we have available to us that <clears throat> we get to deploy, and, uh, you know, everybody has different priorities, so I don't disagree. Just interesting to see priorities of, of one over the other. And, um, you know, the value add is for, for a technical revolution it just comes from the tech. And if you're giving money to these shitcoin companies that do shitcoin things, uh, I think there's a moral quandary there that I personally dislike. But that's just me. I'm a purist, I guess. <laughs> of course. Or, I'm sorry. It's, uh, it's I know you're losing maximalist. your voice. <laughs> who isn't um i know you're losing your voice but i wanted to ask you because you see this number get thrown around i'm sure it's on Noster somewhere it's on twitter but the idea that 40 percent of hash rate is uh basically all in the hands of the same custodian what are your thoughts on the state of i guess hash rate custodians um centralized mining uh, do you have concerns there, or is this a bunch of FUD? So which custodian specifically? Because there's not you know, really... I feel like when I've seen these tweets that I have seen different names. So that's part of the problem. It's kind of like when you're a kid and you're in school and all the kids just say something because they heard the other kids say it. So right. I don't know. And this is why I'm asking you. Because I don't know if this is something that you've encountered. I'm sure you've seen these kind of tweets yeah. or these claims, but I was curious about your thoughts and how you respond to these things. Um, mining is an interesting... I'll also say that I know that supposedly Ocean, supposedly Ocean's mission was to help combat this. And you could debate Ocean, what they're doing, but supposedly that's part of the reason that Ocean came about. Yeah, I was skeptical. Ocean... <clears throat> so, okay. A couple things there the the custodian of whatever pools it doesn't matter who has the bitcoin right they they, they can't impact 
the network. Like this is not a proof of stake network. You can be the Michael Saylor or <laughs> yep. whoever else, right? Like you could be Satoshi. Satoshi could come back and have Satoshi's millions of coins or whatever. And it has no impact on how the network operates. I think the real risk is, and this is not like a perceived risk, it's an accurate risk, but when you have a percentage of the hash rate all sort of, um, we'll call it captured. It's not quite captured, but when you have it, controlled by the same or similar entities that's that's when you risk things where you know like censorship is really a concern this concern comes down to censorship big time because if you have there's something called a 51 percent attack on the bitcoin network and it's it's a it's a numerical game where is if if you have more than half of the mining power for the network then you statistically well, can basically like rearrange transactions and blocks in such a way that it makes it really difficult for somebody that you don't want to transact to transact. It's not, it, it won't stop it forever, right? It, it's basically like putting a delay on it because, um, I mean, unless you start getting well beyond 51%, but even at exactly 51%, it's like, you know, the, the, the likelihood of the same entity finding multiple blocks in a row it goes up but it's not like a guarantee it won't go forever right like somewhere <clears throat> let's just look if we look right now right so the last block was found by foundry uh the one before that was binance sec pool f2 pool ant pool ant pool foundry foundry mara pool um so there's all these different miners now if it started to look like the same pool was finding like three or four blocks in a row, that's when you kind of get concerned about censorship because they could exclude things um, in those blocks. But as long as you have these, you know, even a small percentage of the hash rate dedicated to not censoring, then it's more of a waiting game, right? And it also comes down to the economics of it, right? If I'm if I'm somebody being censored, I can bump my fees up, right? I can pay more money. And now that makes it way more profitable for a miner to mine my transaction, even though I'm being censored by others. Um, and that becomes a little more relevant when the block reward goes down, right? So right now, you know, we're 13,796 blocks from the next halving where you know, every block, there's 6.25 Bitcoin that come out to the miner. After the halving, that gets cut in half, right? That's, the, that's why it's called the halving. So four years beyond that, it cuts in half again. And eventually we're going to go to like sub Bitcoin, like under one Bitcoin worth. We're going to get to like Satoshi's worth of reward. When you get to that point fees become way more important for minor revenue and if you're somebody being censored i mean slap a big old fat fee on there and somebody's going to put that in their transaction or put that in their block time to, to mine on it right like somebody's going to mine that transaction for you it just might take a little bit longer so to circle back to like the original question like custodianship not really worried it doesn't matter who owns the bitcoin they don't control the network <clears throat> Mining hash rate, um, it is really easy to switch your hash if you're a miner from one pool to the other. 
There's also something called Stratum V2 that's coming out that helps sort of decentralize it where miners themselves can now choose what block they're mining. Um, so yeah, I, like it does it worry me? No, not yet. I think that uh, I think the tech's trending in the right direction. Like you mentioned, Ocean, Ocean is doing. Um, they are paying out right in the Coinbase. So there's something called the Coinbase transaction. That's where the new Bitcoin comes from. Coinbase, a company, hijacked that name. Really unfortunate, but there's a Coinbase transaction where you know right now the 6.25 Bitcoin is part of that Coinbase plus whatever fees. So in the Coinbase, Ocean is paying out miners based on their contributions. And so they're not even custodying the funds. I mean, they are to a certain degree because if you don't have enough, if, you're, if your hash power is so little that you don't warrant a lot of Bitcoin, I think it's like a million sats or more or a million sats or less, they won't pay you out. They'll pay you out eventually. But they're working on uh, integrating Lightning, which is like a payments layer. So I think once they get Lightning, you know, it becomes even more economical for like these small miners to to plug into Ocean. And the idea is for, you know, Ocean to, to consume more hash rate and make this thing more decentralized. Um, you know, a lot of people will point to the 2021 mining ban, China banned Bitcoin mining. A whole bunch of hash rate fell off. However, all those hash, all those miners went somewhere, right? Like they had to go somewhere, and uh, it just meant that the hash rate, the miners, got distributed more over, around the world, right? Like it was not concentrated in China anymore. I think there's a concern that the U.S. is uh, consolidating a lot of hash power, and that's only concerning if you're, you know, an adversary of the U.S. potentially. Or if you're um, not a big fan of the state, but uh, in general, the you know over time mining will just continue to decentralize. I think, right? Because it's all about cheap energy. So you've got places, you know, there's villages in Africa that ha that that are building like hydro dams to power their Bitcoin mines. Um, it's not going to be a lot of hash power. But like things like that could pop up. You could build a dam in your backyard. Like if you have a stream in your backyard or like a river or something, some some moving body of water, you can dam it. You can put a turbine there and generate electricity and mine Bitcoin with it, right? And I think once people figure that out, like there's no reason not to. Like why, why wouldn't you do that? It's... Um, it's almost like free electricity at that point. Do you have a dam and a wind turbine in your backyard, Gary? Uh, no, I don't have a wind turbine. But just a general turbine is what you would need. <clears throat> Got to spin the magnets, generate the electricity. I think that's how it works. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, with that... I think we can close. We have sufficiently talked super technically, and by we, I mean you, and I ask you questions, and you're losing your voice. I am. So I will end it listener. with, no, it's fine. All, all four of our listeners are very excited about everything that you've shared tonight. Uh, with that, we'll end it. We'll say uh, study Bitcoin.
Yeah, study Bitcoin, Tim. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining me this evening. Yeah, thank you, Gary. It's been fun. <laughs>